0: Testing 123, testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Lost in Translation. The translation we'll be talking about tonight has to do with Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. And the reason it's called Lost in Translation, well, it can mean that for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it has to do with the fact that it is easy when discussing the subject of how exactly it was that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, it's easy to become lost in a morass of conflicting statements from witnesses to the process. Hopefully, tonight's episode will be able to bring some clarity to that confusion. I do not expect we will be able to settle the matter once and for all. However, there are certain things that we can learn when discussing the subject. Now, I have been thinking about this subject for the last several years, and a number of thoughts have come to my mind over that period of time, which I hope to be able to set forth in this podcast. The reason that these thoughts have gelled in my mind recently, is because of an article that was written by Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig J. Osler. These are two professors at BYU in the religion department. Now Joseph Fielding McConkie has since passed on, but at the time they wrote this article, back in the year 2000, Joseph Fielding McConkie was a professor of ancient scripture at BYU, and Craig J. Osler was an assistant professor of church history and doctrine at BYU. The title of their paper is The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon, and it was published together with several other papers in a book titled Revelations of the Restoration, a commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants and Other Modern Revelations. This was published in Salt Lake City, by Deseret Book in the year 2000. This particular article, The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon, can be found at pages 89 through 98 of that volume. It can also be found, perhaps more easily, on the internet. And the reason this paper was brought to my attention in the last several days is because a particular quote from this paper was brought up on another internet forum, And the reason it was brought up on another internet forum is because it was found interesting, and in fact I find it interesting too, that in this paper written by two professors at BYU in the year 2000, the overall argument is being made that Joseph Smith did not repeat not translate the Book of Mormon by use of his seer stone and placing it in a hat and then placing his face over the hat and then dictating the words that appeared on or above the seer stone. Instead, this paper argues for the orthodox opinion, the dominant narrative, That Joseph Smith did not use his seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon, but instead used the Urim and Thummim that were sealed up and buried with the plates for that purpose. Now, this paper does not go into detail as to how it was exactly that Joseph Smith did translate the Book of Mormon, rather it serves as a polemical piece arguing that Joseph Smith did not use the seer stone in translating the Book of Mormon. In other words, it doesn't say this is how Joseph Smith translated it. It really says that we have no idea how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, but we know that he didn't do it that way. This paper is approximately 10 pages in length, at least as it was published in the original volume. When I print it off the internet, it comes to about 6 pages in length, and that includes the bibliography. So when I refer to different pages in this document, for purposes of this podcast, I'm going to be using the pages that come off the version that I printed from the internet. The quote that brought this article to my attention is found on page 5 of the internet version. This quote has to do with one of the arguments the authors put forth as to why it is, they believe that Joseph Smith did not use the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. Now, in the year 2000, this is 15 years before the church has finally admitted in the Ensign magazine as well as in their essay on the internet that Joseph Smith did actually used the Seer Stone in translating the Book of Mormon. This is the year 2000. It is a time at which The truth about the way Joseph Smith actually translated the Book of Mormon is beginning to come to light through the publication and dissemination of statements made by witnesses to the translation process. What these two BYU professors are doing in their paper is they are arguing against the tide of truth that is beginning to roll forth and they are still trying to maintain the orthodox position that Joseph Smith did not use a seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. Now, as one of their arguments, and this is actually their last argument, it's on page five of the internet version of this article, they use an argument that sounds eerily familiar. And the reason it sounds familiar is because it's the same argument that's used by critics of the church to argue against the idea that Joseph Smith did use a seer stone when translating the Book of Mormon. And the argument basically is that it doesn't make any sense why would the plates even need to be in existence and in the possession of joseph smith if he never looked at them while he was translating the book of mormon this is how they put this argument in this paper. Finally, they start with finally because this is their final argument as to why it is that Joseph Smith did not translate with the seer stone. Finally, the testimony of David Whitmer. We're going to get to this quote by David Whitmer, by the way. The quote from David Whitmer is one of those statements by witnesses saying that Joseph Smith did use the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. Finally, the testimony of David Whitmer simply does not accord with the divine pattern. So they're going to make a policy argument here. This is not how God works. Translating a Book of Mormon by a seer stone, it does not accord with the divine pattern. If Joseph Smith translated everything that is now in the Book of Mormon without using the gold plates, we are left to wonder why the plates were necessary in the first place. You see, here's the argument. Now that the Church has admitted that Joseph Smith translated the plates by use of the seer stone without actually looking at the plates, this same argument is frequently heard from non-members or from critics of the church to say that this makes no sense. Why is it that Joseph Smith would have the plates if he didn't use them? But in the year 2000, these two BYU professors are using the same argument to argue that Joseph Smith did not translate using the seer stone, but they are using it in the context of saying that Joseph Smith did translate the Book of Mormon, but by means other than the seer stone. This is why this is so rich with irony. The article goes on, We are left to wonder why the plates were necessary in the first place. Well, it's a good question. It will be remembered that possession of the plates placed the Smith family in considerable danger, causing them a host of difficulties. If the plates were not part of the translation process, this would not have been the case. So obviously they needed to have the plates, right? It also leaves us wondering why the Lord directed the writers of the Book of Mormon to make a duplicate record of the plates of Lehi. This provision, which compensated for the loss of the 116 pages, would have served no purpose either. Now this is an interesting twist that they place in their argument. In this regard and it's one that I had not recollected hearing before and one that had not occurred to me before. I've certainly heard the argument that why do the plates need to exist? Why does Nephi have to start creating the plates? Why do all the subsequent authors in the Book of Mormon have to go through all the difficulty of writing on these gold plates and collecting them? Why does Mormon at the end of the Book of Mormon, why is he put to the difficult task of having to abridge all these records into this set of gold plates that ends up becoming the Book of Mormon, why does Moroni have to be the custodian of these plates, add his own plates at the end, including his abridgment of the Book of Ether to the Book of Mormon, and then tote them around with him, they were of some considerable weight, this was not an easy task, tote them around with him from place to place and from here to there over a period of decades at the end of his life, only to finally bury them in a hill which would ultimately be in upstate New York and close to the place where Joseph Smith would live approximately 1400 years after they were buried. Why does Moroni have to appear to Joseph Smith to show him where the plates are? And why does Joseph Smith have to wait for four years to finally get the plates into his possession and then place the Smith family in the considerable danger that is talked about by the authors of the paper? Why is all this necessary in order to get Joseph Smith in possession of the plates if, in fact, Joseph Smith never even looked at the plates when he was translating? Because his real method of translation was placing a stone in a hat and then placing his face over the hat to have the dictation or the translation of the Book of Mormon appear, magically, supernaturally, miraculously, whatever adverb you want to use, in the hat and above or on the stone. But here, at this point, as I say, the authors make an interesting additional argument here because we know about the story of the lost 116 pages. This was the Book of Lehi. This is the first set of plates that were on top Of the gold plates that were found by joseph smith joseph smith spends a considerable amount of time and effort with his scribe martin harris dictating and translating the first 116 pages from this volume martin harris wants to take the pages to show his family so that they can see that he's not out of his mind in believing what joseph smith is saying Joseph Smith inquires of the Lord, he gets two no's, he finally gets a yes. Martin Harris takes the 116 pages off to show his family or whoever, and then he loses them, he can't find them, he comes back, and those are lost to history. Those 116 pages are never found again. And of course here the question arises, if Joseph Smith had the ability, as several witnesses say, if he had the ability of using the seer stone to place it in a hat, and use it as a means of finding lost items, such as buried treasure or even a lost pin, that's P-I-N, according to a story by an early witness. If he could use it for those purposes, why couldn't he just use the seer stone to find out where the lost 116 pages were? That is a question that is apparently never asked by early contemporaries of Joseph Smith and the witnesses to the Book of Mormon translation, and it's certainly a question that was never answered by Joseph Smith, or to our knowledge, any of the other witnesses. The mere fact is is that Joseph Smith did not use his seer stone in order to find the 116 pages. If he had, they would not be the lost 116 pages anymore, because he would have found them. The Book of Mormon, in the section titled Words of Mormon, has Mormon, the abridger of the record, receiving inspiration from God to include a duplicate record that covers the same time period as those pages that would ultimately be Lost, He calls them the small plates of Nephi and he says that for a wise purpose in the Lord that he doesn't know why He's going to include this separate section of plates the small plates of Nephi Even though it covers the same record that he's already placed and abridged himself Into the record and these plates will indeed be very convenient because when the hundred and sixteen pages are lost now we have a second record that covers the same period of time So that when Joseph Smith translates the Book of Mormon, the entire period from Lehi leaving Jerusalem all the way up to the final battle on Cumorah will all be accounted for. It will all be able to be covered. The lost 116 pages will not put a dent in the chronology of the narrative of the Book of Mormon. But here in this paper, these two BYU professors raise a very interesting question. This is an additional wrinkle to the question of why it is that Joseph Smith needed to have the plates in order to translate the Book of Mormon if in fact he did not look at the plates during the translation. Why is it that Mormon needs to get this additional inspiration to include the second overlaying part of history, i.e. the small plates of Nephi? Why does Mormon have to include these separate plates in the Book of Mormon itself, in the gold plates, if Joseph Smith never even looks at the plates to translate? So I give them credit for coming up with an additional argument as to why it is that it makes really no sense for the Book of Mormon to have been assembled and then abridged by Mormon in this unusual and unique way if, in fact, Joseph Smith never looked at the plates. This article goes on. Further, we would be left to wonder why it was necessary for Moroni to instruct Joseph each year for four years before he was entrusted with the plates. We would also wonder why it was so important for Moroni to show the plates to the three witnesses, including David Whitmer. And they're singling out David Whitmer here for a reason because really this entire paper deals with a certain quote from David Whitmer. We'll get to that in a minute. And why did the Lord have the prophet show the plates to the eight witnesses? Why all this flap and fuss if the prophet didn't really have the plates and if they were not used in the process of translation? What David Whitmer is asking us to believe, and once again they're responding specifically and really exclusively to a quote from David Whitmer, What David Whitmer is asking us to believe is that the Lord had Moroni seal up the plates and the means by which they were to be translated hundreds of years before they would come into Joseph Smith's possession, and then decided to have the prophet use a seer stone found while digging a well so that none of these things would be necessary after all. Is this, we would ask, really a credible explanation of the way the heavens operate? Well, that is an excellent question, but now it's not just David Whitmer and this one quote from David Whitmer that is asking us to believe something that seems so contrary to the way the heavens operate. It is the LDS Church that is now asking us to believe this because the LDS Church has now made it its official position in its essay on its website dealing with Book of Mormon translation that Joseph Smith did, in fact, translate the Book of Mormon as we have it today exclusively through using a seer stone in a hat and never actually looking at the plates during the course of translation. So let me read that last question from these two BYU professors, but instead of David Whitmer, I'll insert the LDS Church because... The ground has shifted in the past 20 years. What the LDS Church, not David Whitmer, what the LDS Church is asking us to believe is that the Lord had Moroni seal up the plates and the means by which they were to be translated hundreds of years before they would come into Joseph Smith's possession and then decided to have the prophet use a seer stone found while digging a well so that none of these things would be necessary after all. You see how it applies today to the LDS Church and not only to David Whitmer at the time they wrote the article. And actually, at the time they wrote the article, it applied to more than just David Whitmer. Once again, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But their final question applies equally to the LDS Church today as it did in their paper written 20 years ago to David Whitmer. Their question was this. Is this, we would ask, really a credible explanation of the way the heavens operate. Well, I think that the answer to that depends upon your point of view. Obviously, it's a rhetorical question as it is written here in this paper. The answer that they would give to that would be no. However, one would expect that now that the church has adopted that explanation of the Searstone method of translation as its official position, they probably would change their answer to that rhetorical question if it were asked again today. Now it would be a credible explanation of the way the heavens operate, 20 years ago they would apparently have answered the opposite. But now I want to go to this paper, go to the first part of the paper, and I want to go through the paper step by step. Because by doing so, it helps bring forth and coalesce all these different ideas that I've been having about the Book of Mormon Translation over the last several years. Once again, when I read this article, it becomes clear to me that the purpose of this paper is apologetic. It is not really a historical paper. The reason it is written is to make a point. And the point, as I have said, is to poo-poo the idea that Joseph Smith used a seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. And more specifically, it is to poo-poo the statement made by David Whitmer, and only the statement made by David Whitmer. That's the only statement they deal with in this paper. To discount this statement by David Whitmer and to show why it is that they believe it should not be relied upon, that it is not true. That it is not correct now the reason i say this is obviously a polemical piece in other words it's just mormon apologetics is because not only does it deal only with the statement by david whitmer it does not deal with other statements by other witnesses that corroborate what david whitmer said i think it's pretty clear that these two professors at byu would have been aware of these other statements made by other witnesses and specifically we'll talk in a few minutes about the statement by Emma Smith. But they make their argument in such a way as to not talk about any other statements. They are focused exclusively, like a laser beam, on this one statement by David Whitmer. And I think that that also is revealing. It takes them a little while to get to the statement of David Whitmer in their paper, so let's go to that right now so you'll know exactly what it is. That I'm talking about, I think that the details in this statement will not be new to most listeners of this podcast. They deal with this paper in a question-and-answer format, and they go through a number of questions before they finally get to the real purpose of the paper, which is on page 4 of the internet version. Question. In addition to statements of the prophet, the text of Doctrine and Covenants 9, and the testimony of Oliver Cowdery, who else has described the process by which the Book of Mormon was translated? Answer. Perhaps prime among their number would be David Whitmer. Aha, we finally get to the point of the paper. Then they ask the question, what light does he shed on the matter? Well, this is David Whitmer. This is the individual who, although he left the church in the 1830s, he lived to a ripe old age and maintained the truth and his testimony of the Book of Mormon until his last breath. In fact, he's the individual who had his testimony of the Book of Mormon inscribed on his tombstone so that he would be able to continue to testify of the Book of Mormon even after his death. But the question they ask is, what light does he shed on the matter? And their answer is, precious little. Now that's not all of their answer, but that's the start of their answer, precious little. Obviously they want to discount this individual who was so intimately associated and acquainted with the early days of Mormonism and is in fact one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. It goes on, after saying precious little, Then they're going to go through a number of arguments about why it is that David Whitmer should not be believed in his testimony. We'll get to that in due course as we work our way through the paper from the beginning. But I do want to get to the actual statement by David Whitmer, which they finally get around to not really quoting, but more paraphrasing. But here's what they say, spanning a period of 20 years, from 1869 to 1888, some 70 recorded testimonies about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon claimed David Whitmer as their source. You see, he was bearing his testimony everywhere and every time he possibly could because he thought it was incumbent upon him to do so. The article goes on, though there are a number of inconsistencies in these accounts, see how they want to undermine it right there, without going into detail, they're going to say there are a number of inconsistencies. In these accounts, so this is another reason why we should hesitate before we take it at face value. One wonders parenthetically whether the inconsistencies in Joseph Smith's first vision accounts would provoke the same reaction from these two authors. I'm guessing probably not, but here they think that inconsistencies in the accounts that David Whitmer gives of the translation of the Book of Mormon, though, should detract from his credibility. Though there are a number of inconsistencies in these accounts, David Whitmer was repeatedly reported to have said that after the loss of the 116 pages, the Lord took both the plates and the Urim and Thummim from the prophet, never to be returned. And actually, that's kind of confusing because I think maybe he said that the Urim and Thummim was taken, never to be returned, but certainly not the plates. The plates were obviously returned. That doesn't even make sense to me. Once again, they say that according to his statements, after the loss of the 116 pages, the Lord took both the plates and the Urim and Thummim from the prophet, never to be returned. In their stead... David Whitmer maintained the prophet used an oval-shaped chocolate-colored seer stone slightly larger than an egg. Thus, everything we have in the Book of Mormon, according to Mr. Whitmer, and by the way, now according to the LDS Church, but in in this article in the year 2000, according to Mr. Whitmer, everything we have in the Book of Mormon was translated by placing the chocolate-colored stone in a hat, into which Joseph Smith would bury his head so as to close out the light. While doing so, he could see, quote, now this is a quote from David Whitmer in this paper. While doing so, he could see, quote, an oblong piece of parchment on which the hieroglyphics would appear, end quote. And below the ancient writing, the translation would be given in English. Joseph would then read this to Oliver Cowdery, who in turn would write it. If he did so correctly, the characters and the interpretation would disappear and be replaced by other characters with their interpretation. And that is citing to a volume titled David Whitmer Interviews. They close out this part of their section by giving their opinion about what David Whitmer has to say. Such an explanation is, in our judgment, simply fiction created for the purpose of demeaning Joseph Smith and to undermine the validity of the revelations he received after translating the Book of Mormon. They then give a number of reasons as to why it is that, in their opinion, David Whitmer should not be believed. As I say, the sole focus of this paper is to discount this statement by David Whitmer, which is extremely ironic in light of the fact that today this becomes the official version of the church, that this is the way that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Although I will note for the record that I went back and reread the Church's essay on the Church's website which was published in 2015 and found that the statement and this testimony by David Whitmer was strangely absent from the narrative. They quoted others such as Emma Smith and even Martin Harris on the subject of Joseph Smith using the seer stone, however they did not talk about David Whitmer's testimony. So why is it that Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig Osler, two BYU professors in the year 2000, would feel it incumbent upon them to write a paper discounting this statement by David Whitmer. And why would they focus on this one statement by David Whitmer to the exclusion of the statements of any other witnesses that talk about Joseph Smith using the Seer Stone? It seems clear that history is not their objective, but that there is an argument that they are making. The question I want to raise at the beginning is, who is it that they are making this argument? Against Sure, it's against David Whitmer, but who is it who's quoting David Whitmer that they feel the need to respond to? The very first paragraph of their paper makes it clear that they're not writing this in a vacuum, but that they are in fact responding to arguments made by others who they do not name, but who we will be able to guess here in a second, that they are responding to others who are making the argument that Joseph Smith did use the seer stone. And apparently, since they're focusing on the statement by David Whitmer, the people they're responding to are obviously using the statement by David Whitmer in support of their argument, which this paper seeks to contradict. Here's the very first paragraph. Here's how they start their paper. Explanations as to how the Book of Mormon was translated have become the source of considerable speculation and misinformation. See, they're responding to the speculation and misinformation about Joseph Smith using a seer stone and using the David Whitmer quote to support it. This is why they're writing this paper. There appears to be little interest on the part of some writers, see they're not going to say who they are, but there appears to be little interest on the part of some writers to distinguish between what might be called historical prattle and competent testimony. Well, obviously the historical prattle is David Whitmer. The competent testimony is everybody who supports their position, that Joseph Smith did not use a seer stone. But in fact, we find that there's really very few people who support their position. We'll get to that later on. They continue. For instance, scripture, statements by the prophets himself, and the collaborative testimony of Oliver Cowdery, the only first-hand sources we have on the matter, They're not really the only first-hand sources, but this is their position. The only first-hand sources we have on the matter are not, among some, accorded the same attention or credence as things said by second-hand witnesses who in thought and spirit were clearly out of harmony with the prophet and the church. And yes, prophet is capitalized and so is church. Church they were clearly out of harmony with the prophet and the church. So this is how they're leading into their discussion of David Whitmer. They're saying that his statements, that Joseph Smith used a seer stone, were clearly out of harmony with the prophet and the church, and that there are some people who are writing about the church or talking about the church, and specifically writing or talking about the translation method that Joseph Smith used in the Book of Mormon, who are using statements by David Whitmer, maybe among others, but principally by David Whitmer, in order to support a view that they consider to be out of harmony with the prophet and the church. That the statement by David Whitmer is not correct, it is not competent testimony, instead it is historical prattle. Well, this made me wonder who it is that they might be referring to. And I will tell you that a suspect has arisen. (laughs) And I will say that although I cannot tell you that they are responding only to this one person, it is clear that they are responding at least to this one person. And the one person I'm talking about is Russell M. Nelson, now the current president of the LDS Church. This is being recorded in February of 2020. Elder Russell M. Nelson has now ascended to be the president of the LDS Church. And back in 1993, Elder Nelson was still an apostle in the church, but he gave a talk. And the talk that he gave was to a group of newly called mission presidents at the Missionary Training Center. He gave this talk to them in 1992. And this talk was thought to be so important and worthy of publication that it, in fact, was published in the Ensign Magazine in 1993. And the subject of Elder Russell M. Nelson's talk was the translation of the Book of Mormon. And in this speech that he gave, which was published in the Ensign, he refers to and even quotes this statement from David Whitmer. He does not quote any other witnesses about the translation of the Book of Mormon, at least as it relates to a seer stone, except for David Whitmer. Now let me read that quote to you from the 1993 Ensign Magazine. The title of the article is A Treasured Testament and it was adapted from an address he gave on June 25, 1992 at the Seminar for New Mission Presidents. Here is what he says, once again published in the Ensign. This is quoting President Nelson, who will soon be quoting David Whitmer. The details of this miraculous method of translation are still not fully known, yet we do have a few precious insights. David Whitmer wrote, And now he's going to give this entire quote from David Whitmer, which was only paraphrased by the two BYU professors in their 2000 article. Quoting from David Whitmer in the Enzyme magazine, Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light. And in the darkness, the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God and not by any power of man, period, end of quote from David Whitmer. And this quote from David Whitmer is from his book, An Address to All Believers in Christ, published in Richmond, Missouri in 1887, page 12. So this is the quote that Russell and Nelson gives to us, published in the pages of the Ensign in 1993. And seven years later, these two BYU professors write a paper in which they respond to this David Whitmer quote and seek to debunk the use of the quote. It would seem unlikely that two BYU professors would be unaware of this article published in the Ensign magazine being an address that was given by an apostle of the LDS Church. It is hard to believe that either or both of these two BYU professors would be unaware of the use of this David Whitmer quote by Elder Russell M. Nelson in the 1993 Ensign, and when we are aware of that, we may be better able to understand why it is that these two BYU professors do not want to specifically designate who it is that's using this David Whitmer quote and why it is that they feel the need to respond to the misuse in their opinion, of this David Whitmer quote. Knowing that Elder Russell M. Nelson approvingly used this David Whitmer quote to describe the translation method of the Book of Mormon in 1993 makes it even more interesting as to how they couch their very first paragraph. I'm going to read that again, and now we'll have an additional light on the subject. Explanations as to how the Book of Mormon was translated have become the source of considerable speculative And misinformation. There appears to be little interest on the part of some writers. Are they talking about Elder Russell M. Nelson? Probably. There appears to be little interest on the part of some writers to distinguish between what might be called historical prattle and competent testimony. And then they accuse writers such as Russell M. Nelson of not looking at scripture or statements by the prophet himself or the collaborative testimony of Oliver Cowdery but instead, they accord the same attention or credence as things said by second-hand witnesses. They're calling David Whitmer a second-hand witness. They accord the same attention or credence as things said by second-hand witnesses who in thought and spirit were clearly out of harmony with the prophet and the church. So what they're saying is that Elder Russell M. Nelson is using a quote from David Whitmer talking about a translation method that is clearly out of harmony with the prophet and the church. I think it's very clear now why it is they didn't want to actually mention Russell M. Nelson's name. They are skating on thin ice enough as it is. There are no footnotes or endnotes in this particular article for them to use to specify who it is exactly that they are responding to, but they do have a brief bibliography at the back, and in the bibliography, they do not, repeat not, cite to this article in the Enzyme by Elder Russell M. Nelson. That is perhaps the least surprising part of this paper. But before I go on to a more elaborate deconstruction of this paper by the two BYU professors, I want to tell you a story that occurred to me. Actually, it didn't occur to me. I'm the one who made it happen. But it occurred back in the year 2008. It was January of 2008 and I was teaching the Gospel Doctrine class in my ward. I had the calling to teach Gospel Doctrine for four years and those four years were from 2006 to 2010, it was basically the middle of 2006 to the middle of 2010, I got a chance to go through all four years of the cycle of the standard works being taught in gospel doctrine class. There were a lot of interesting things that happened during those four years, but one of the most interesting happened in January of 2008 because in 2008, the subject of discussion and the subject of the class was the Book of Mormon. And in the very first few lessons, we talked, of course, about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, typically, in my classes, I did not use visual aids at the beginning or attention-grabbing exercises at the beginning of class, as is frequently done by many teachers in the church. But on this particular day, I thought I would make an exception. And what I did was I brought my old beat-up farm hat to class. It wasn't a top hat. I don't have a top hat, but I did have an old beat-up farm hat. And so what I did was I brought this to church. And at the beginning of the Gospel Doctrine class, I got up in front. This was held in the chapel so you can visualize this better. I got up in front of all the class members with this old beat-up hat, and I began to talk roughly as follows. I told the class that when I was a kid, I was really, really fascinated by things that glowed in the dark. And when I was growing up in the 1960s, it was becoming a recent kind of technology, at least to me, with watches to paint the numbers, or at least the lines next to the numbers, with paint that glowed in the dark. And I found this absolutely fascinating. I remember getting a watch for my birthday back in 1968, and it had luminous dials. And I loved looking at that luminous dial at night when I was in bed. But I also wanted to look at it sometimes during the day. But during the day, that luminous dial was not luminous because the light outside, the daylight, the sunlight, was much brighter than the dial itself. So what I could do though, is I could take that watch off my wrist and I would demonstrate to the class because actually in front of the class, I had a watch with a luminous dial. And I'd take it off my wrist like I'm doing now and I would say I could put it in the cup of my hand, I could hold my hands together in a cup and then put that watch in my cup and I could hold that cup up to my eye And in the darkness, I could still see the luminous dials. And that was really, really cool. The only problem is that when it's in the cup of my hand and I'm looking at it like that, I can see that there's something glowing, but I can't really see what the number is. I can't focus on it because it's too close to my eyeball. I can see it glowing, but I can't really read it. Now I produce the hat, and I say, but if I want to read it, I have to get it far enough away from my eye that I can read it, but it still has to be dark enough that the luminous dials will glow. So I took the watch, I put it in the bottom of the hat, I held the hat up to my face, and I said, and now I can not only see the luminous dials glowing in the dark, I can actually read them because they're far enough away from my face. Now, at this point, there are some people who are looking at me like I'm crazy, and there is one sister who is sitting over here as I'm standing up in front of the class. She's over here to my right. This sister was the bane of my existence as a gospel doctrine teacher. She is the one who was always complaining that I wasn't following the manual. She is the one who, when I got off track, which she felt I did on a regular basis, she wore a path along the indoor-outdoor carpeting from the chapel to the bishop's office because she would go there to complain about my teaching so much. But this sister is laughing so hard that she is turning red in the face and tears are streaming down her cheeks because I look so ridiculous and she cannot believe that I'm doing this in front of the entire class. Well, I am relishing the moment that's coming up because I know exactly where this is going and you know exactly where this is going. But apparently nobody in my class, and especially this particular sister, had no idea where I was going. So I give this complete demonstration in front of the class, and then I finally pull my face out of my hat and I look around and I say, well, some of you must be wondering why on earth it is that I'm giving this demonstration and talking about something so off topic as my watch, the glowing dials, and putting it in a hat and putting my face in the hat in a lesson that's supposed to be talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon and how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. I'm sure there must be somebody here, I say to the class. I'm sure there must be somebody here who knows why it is that I'm doing this. And I look around the class. There must have been 40, 50 people here expecting at least one, two, three, four, five hands. Come on, somebody to know why it is that I'm doing this. But nobody raises a hand. I can't believe this. I actually say, really, is there nobody? I give them another chance. No hands are raised. So I say to the class, because that's how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. At that point you could hear a pin drop in this chapel. And I went on to explain how it was that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by using the stone in the hat. But I knew that if I came in there just with a hat and a watch and my word for it, I might end up having <laughs> I might end up being crucified by the time that class was over. So I had in my back pocket a copy of the 1993 Ensign magazine or at least a copy of the article with Elder Russell M. Nelson quoting David Whitmer to the effect that that is in fact how it was done. And I read that to the class so that they really basically had to accept the fact that I was telling them the real story. And this is how it was that I became aware of the fact that in this anomalous article in the Enzyme Magazine from 1993, Elder Russell M. Nelson quotes David Whitmer. And why it was that when I began reading this article from the year 2000 by these two BYU professors, I started getting a sneaking suspicion that that is exactly who it was that they were addressing in this article. So if we go back to this article now, we've already read the first paragraph. Let's go to the second paragraph because I think this is interesting too. And as I say, this article brings to my mind and coalesces all these various and disparate thoughts that I've had regarding the translation process of the Book of Mormon. The second paragraph says this, The matter of how the Book of Mormon was translated has been of considerable interest and discussion virtually from the time the book became public. This is illustrated, and here's a famous story, this is illustrated in the exchange that took place between the prophet and his brother Hiram in a conference of the church held 25th October 1831. So this is very early on in the history of the church, 1831. On that occasion, Hiram said that he thought best that the information of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon be related by Joseph himself to the elders present, that all might know for themselves. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, they're at a conference and he's talking to the audience and he says he thinks it would be a good thing if Joseph Smith disclosed and told everybody assembled how it was that he translated the Book of Mormon so that everybody would know for themselves. It sounds like Hiram Smith already knows and he wants Joseph Smith to go ahead and tell it to everybody instead of Hiram Smith relating what he has heard from Joseph Smith. In response, the article goes on, in response, Joseph Smith said that, quote, it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and also said that it was not expedient for him to relate these things, and etc. So that's the second paragraph of this article, it recounts this famous story. But you know, as I began thinking more and more about this story, it does seem very strange. I think as faithful Mormons, we may be expected to learn church history and we're certainly expected to accept it, but we're not expected to question it. In fact, I think we're discouraged from questioning it because the question that immediately comes to my mind is, why, why Joseph Smith? Why is it that you are given the golden opportunity by your brother? to explain how it was the Book of Mormon came forth, but you beg off answering and explaining, and instead you say it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Well, why not? Why was it not intended to tell the world all the particulars? of the Book of Mormon and in fact we're not telling all the world, we're just telling a group of elders at a conference of the church itself. We're not out there writing a newspaper article, we're just talking to the membership of the church and indeed the priesthood holders in the LDS church. Why is it not intended that you should tell the particulars about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon? Now, some people would say, and I think that the authors of this article will get around to indicating that they think it's because it was so sacred. It was so sacred that it was not intended for the world to know. But when I start thinking about this further, I think, well, you know, Joseph Smith is talking about Jesus Christ appearing to him, at least in the following year, 1832, he'll talk about Jesus Christ appearing to him in the sacred grove in response to his prayer for forgiveness. And by the time 1835 rolls around and then 1838, he's talking about how God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him in that same grove in a vision, in what is called the first vision. He'll talk about how an angel of God Moroni appeared to him and showed him where the plates were buried. Those things would seem to be very sacred. I can't think of anything more sacred than Jesus and his father appearing to a person. And yet Joseph Smith doesn't want to talk about the method of translating the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm not saying that this tells how the Book of Mormon was translated. All I'm saying is that it appears that it isn't because it was so sacred. Joseph Smith talks about sacred things all the time. In fact, things that are so sacred, it's hard to imagine the method of translating the Book of Mormon as being more sacred. There's some reason other than its sacredness that Joseph Smith does not want to talk about the method of translating the Book of Mormon. For some reason, he seems to be uncomfortable with describing how it is that he translated the Book of Mormon. Why that is, we don't know. All I'm saying is, it's probably not because it was so sacred. But here is Joseph Smith at this conference of elders in 1831, and here's his good old brother Hiram getting up in front of everybody and saying, Hey, Joseph Smith, this would be a great time for you to tell how it was you translated the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith basically gets up and says, he's put, he's thrust into this position by his brother Hiram. And he basically has to say, Ixnay on the translation tray. Hiram, hey. We're not, we don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. Thanks a lot for putting me in this position. Once again, we don't know why it is that he didn't want to talk about it. But the fact that he didn't want to talk about it is suggestive. Perhaps the reason he didn't want to talk about it is because he did not think that if he talked about the details, it would promote faith in the elders who were in his audience. Perhaps there's another reason. I don't know. At this point, I'm just speculating, as everybody else has to do. The only thing we know is that Joseph Smith was given the golden opportunity to explain it, and he begged off, and later on, the only statement he gives is that it was translated by the gift and power of God. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go into any other details. Instead, we are left to the statements of other witnesses of the translation process to find out what it is that they saw and what they understood that translation process to be. The article by the two BYU professors now goes on. Yet it was not intended that we be entirely ignorant of the process of translation. Otherwise, the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, Section 9, would not have been included in a compilation of revelations intended for the eyes of the entire world. Now, they're going to get to their argument based on Doctrine and Covenants, Section 9, here in a minute. We'll deal with that when we get to it. This is, of course, the section that talks about you must study it out in your mind. There are principles involved here, of which every faithful Latter-day Saint ought to be a competent witness. There are also counterfeit notions. So in the earliest Church, we not only have counterfeit families, we also have counterfeit notions about how the Book of Mormon was translated that enhance neither our understanding of how revelation is received, nor our appreciation for the labor and faith involved, so that we might have the Book of Mormon. Perhaps the matter can be treated most directly in a question and answer format. We will proceed in that manner. So that's the introduction to their paper. And now they begin with questions and answers dealing with the subject of how it was that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. And once again, more than not, they're going to deal with how Joseph Smith did not translate the Book of Mormon. Then they are going to deal with the question of how Joseph Smith actually did translate the Book of Mormon, and when they get to their arguments about how Joseph Smith did translate the Book of Mormon, we can see that they don't end up making a whole lot of sense once we think about them for more than, oh, I don't know, five seconds. So here is the first question that they get to in their paper. This is still on page one of the internet version of their paper titled, The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon. The first question is this, why was Joseph Smith so reluctant to disclose details relative to the process of translation where well, they're going to ask the same question that I asked before when they were recounting the story about Joseph Smith not wanting to get into the subject. Here is their answer. Oh, answer because of its sacred nature. Well, I think we kind of already discounted that idea. It wasn't that sacred. I mean, it wasn't more sacred than God and Jesus appearing to Joseph Smith to tell them that none of the churches were true. And yet, it's because of its sacred nature that Joseph Smith doesn't want to go into details. That is their answer for it. That's the one answer that I think we pretty much ruled out as being a possibility. And yet, that's the one that they go immediately to. Because as soon as anything is kept secret in the church, it is immediately thought, well, it's because It's sacred we even have a bumper sticker slogan about it which i've heard in the church ever since i got baptized in 1978 which is the temple ceremonies they are not secret they're sacred so the secrecy itself imbues something with sacredness from the mormon paradigm in other words something that can be pedestrian and really not that remarkable can be made sacred simply by keeping it a secret the common expression we hear which i just quoted is it's not sacred it's secret. No, no, I'm sorry. No, that's the the critical. Okay, the common expression that I just quoted is, it's not secret, it's sacred. But I think the actuality is, is that things become sacred because they are kept secret. Once again, their answer to this question is because of its sacred nature. And then they're going to elaborate on that as they go on with this answer as to why it was so sacred. The article continues, it is an awful responsibility, quote unquote, Joseph Smith said, to write in the name of the Lord. So they quote Joseph Smith as saying, it is an awful responsibility to write in the name of the Lord, which is not exactly the same as saying that it is sacred, but it is close enough, I suppose, to suit their purposes. It goes on, nor would we suppose it a small thing to be entrusted with a seeric device, that's S-E-E-R-I-C, seeric device, such as the Urim and Thummim. Just as the instrument itself was not to be held up to the gaze of the world, neither was the process by which it functioned. It seems more than coincidence that one of the first things translated by Joseph Smith after Oliver Cowdery became his scribe was the story of King Limhi, asking Ammon if he could translate the records in his possession. So here they're talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon, how after the 116 pages were lost, Joseph Smith finally meets up with Oliver Cowdery. They commence translating the Book of Mormon as we have it today. But instead of going back to what we have as 1 Nephi, they continue with where it had left off being the Book of Mosiah. And they quote from Mosiah 8.13. Ammon responded that he could not. In other words, he could not translate the records that were in King Limhi's possession. He could not, but he knew one who could. Ammon then explained, quote, "...for he has wherewith that he can look, and translate all records that are of ancient date, and it is a gift from God, and the things are called interpreters, and no man can look in them, except he be commanded, lest he should look for that he ought not, and he should perish." And whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called seer. So there's that quote from the Book of Mormon as quoted in this article. It appears that the reason they want to quote this passage is to bring in the subject of the interpreters. But even here, the Book of Mormon appears to be more willing to give some details regarding the translation process of the Book of Mormon than Joseph Smith himself was in 1831, because it talks about the interpreters and says, no man can look in them. So obviously there's a process of looking in the interpreters, whatever that exactly means. No man can look in them, except he be commanded, lest he should look, for that he ought not and he should perish, and then this final line, which I want to talk about here a little bit, and whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called seer. So that is the Book of Mormon's definition of a seer. A seer is somebody who not only has possession of interpreters, or seer stones, or Urim and Thummim, depending upon what interpretation you're wanting to throw on it. We'll talk about that in a second, too. But you have to have possession of the interpreters and be commanded to look in them. That is who is called seer. That is the definition of a seer in the Book of Mormon. And whenever I read this, it strikes me as a strange thing that we currently sustain 15 gentlemen as prophets, seers, and revelators in the church let's strip away the prophets and revelators part and just focus on the seers if they are a seer if President Nelson is a seer then he is someone according to the definition of the Book of Mormon who not only has possession of interpreters or a seer stone but he is commanded to look in them that's what he has to do in order to be a seer and yet even though the church has revealed in 2015 that it still possesses the seer stone of Joseph Smith, and it is hidden in the church vault. It was brought out for a photo op in 2015 in the Enzyme magazine, once word of its existence had leaked out sufficiently that the church felt it could no longer plausibly ignore its existence. But I am aware of no evidence that President Nelson or any of the First Presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve, all of whom are called seers, I am aware of no evidence that any of them has been commanded to look into the seer stone by God. This same definition of a seer is picked up by Joseph Smith in his 1838 history. Because by 1838, it looks like Joseph Smith was prepared to give a few more details regarding the translation of the Book of Mormon than he was in 1831. That's where he said that it was never intended that the world should know all the details about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. In 1838, he gives us a description of how it was that the Book of Mormon was to be translated, at least the tools to be used. This is from Joseph Smith History. You can find it in the Pearl of Great Price. It's verse 35. It talks about what he found in the box, in the hill Camorra. Also, there were two stones in silver bows, and these stones, fastened to a breastplate, constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates, and, now get this, and the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times and that God had prepared them. Why? God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. So here, once again, Joseph Smith duplicates or echoes that same definition of seer found in the Book of Mormon. And he says in verse 35 of his 1838 history, that the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times and that god had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book so please note it is not just the possession of these stones that constitutes a seer according to joseph smith's 1838 history it is also the use of these stones he says the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times so once again when we raise our hand to sustain the prophet and the other leaders of the church as seers what we are doing is we are acknowledging, at least if we're to believe the Book of Mormon, and at least if we're to believe Joseph Smith in his history, that they not only possess seer stones, but also that they use seer stones. And if that is truly the case, then perhaps they are just too humble to acknowledge it publicly. Now there's another anomaly in this passage that I want to discuss with you. Please notice that by 1838, Joseph Smith is talking about the two stones, which he describes as being in silver bows and fastened to a breastplate. That these two stones were prepared, they were deposited with the plates, and that God had prepared them, the stones, for the purpose of translating the book. This is a strange state of affairs. In 1838, Joseph Smith is saying that these two stones, the urim and thummim, fastened in the silver bows attached to the breastplate, are what God had prepared for the translating of the Book of Mormon. And yet, and yet, according to the earliest witness testimonies, Joseph Smith did not use the two stones that he found in the box that were in the silver bows and attached to the breastplate for translating the Book of Mormon. Instead, he used a seer stone that he had in his possession prior to the translation of the Book of Mormon and prior to Moroni appearing to him to show him where the gold plates were buried. A seer stone that he had used in treasure digs with his neighbors in upstate New York and also as far south as the border of New York and Pennsylvania, where he went to use them for a treasure dig for Josiah Stoll in 1825. I don't mean to confuse you by laying on too many details here. Once again, this is why this episode is called Lost in Translation. Not only is the translation subject itself extremely complicated and convoluted and contradictory, it's easy to get lost in the details of it. But the very fact that this is the state of things with the facts related to statements about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and its translation are so convoluted and contradictory that it can make it very easy to get lost in those facts. Once again, the main point I'm trying to make here is that according to Joseph Smith, two stones were prepared by God and deposited with the plates for the purpose, and I'll quote him again here, for the purpose of translating the book. That is Joseph Smith's testimony. And it's also riffing on something that's in the Book of Mormon itself. Once again, we'll get to that here in a second, which raises the question, If God took two stones and deposited them with the plates or had Moroni deposit them with the plates for the purpose of translating the book, why is Joseph Smith not using those stones to translate the book? Why instead is he using a brown seer stone that he had in his possession prior to obtaining the plates? Why does Joseph Smith substitute this method for the method that God had prepared and ordained and which Joseph Smith himself admits to that fact in his history. This is an argument that is related to the argument regarding why it was that the Nephites took all this time and effort to inscribe their history on gold plates, that Mormon took all the time to abridge it. We've gone over this before, but why was all this effort made to create the plates, to get them to Joseph Smith, for him to protect the plates from people who are trying to get them from him. Why all this effort if Joseph Smith never looked at the plates? So that's one argument. This is a similar and related, but slightly different argument, which is why did God prepare seer stones And have Moroni deposit them in the stone box with the plates for the purpose of translating the plates, according to Joseph Smith, for the purpose of translating the book, if Joseph Smith did not use those stones to translate the book. Now, once again, this is 1838, so this is well on in the development of the history of the church. We'll come back to that in a second. But I want to focus now on something that Joseph Fielding Smith wrote back in the 1950s and 1960s in one of his answers to gospel questions he addresses this question and he argues for the fact that Joseph Smith did not use a seer stone to translate the plates because of this specific argument ie why on earth would God prepare stones for translating the plates and then have Joseph Smith not use the stones that God had prepared this doesn't seem to make any sense at least not to Joseph Fielding Smith and in some sense I think we can see that Joseph Fielding McConkie who was one of the two BYU professors who wrote this article, which was published in 2000 that we've been reading from, is continuing to promote that position. And Joseph Fielding McConkie, as you know, was the grandson and, in fact, the namesake of Joseph Fielding Smith. So he's continuing to carry the torch that was originally put forward by his grandfather in Answers to Gospel Questions. Let me read to you a passage from that article. This is from Volume 3, pages 225 and 226 of Doctrines of Salvation. Oops. Is that true, Doctrines of Salvation? Actually, it's not answers to gospel questions, apparently. It's really from Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 3, pages 225 through 226. This is Joseph Fielding Smith. Doctrines of Salvation is a three-volume collection of statements by Joseph Fielding Smith, and that was made by his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie. He's the one who edited these and collected them and organized them for publication in the three-volume work, Doctrines of Salvation. So once again, here's Joseph Fielding Smith making this argument. Quote, while the statement has been made by some writers that the prophet Joseph Smith used a seer stone part of the time in his translating of the record. Okay, hang on just a second. This alone is significant because Joseph Fielding Smith, who was the preeminent historian and scriptorian of the LDS Church for decades and eventually became its 10th president, he is aware at the time he's writing this article, of other statements by writers to the effect that Joseph Smith did use a seer stone at least part of the time in his translating of the Book of Mormon. Notice that's how he begins this quote. Once again, while the statement has been made by some writers that the prophet Joseph Smith used the seer stone part of the time in his translating of the record, and information points to the fact that he did have in his possession such a stone, yet There is no authentic statement, so all these statements that he's aware of, they're not authentic, yet there is no authentic statement in the history of the church. Can you say true Scotsman fallacy? And yet there is no authentic statement in the history of the church, which states that the use of such a stone was made in that translation. So he's probably aware of the David Whitmer statement. That's not going to be an authentic statement. He's probably aware of the Martin Harris statement. That's not going to be an authentic statement. He's also likely aware of the statement by Emma Smith, which we'll get to here eventually. But that is also not an authentic statement, at least in Joseph Fielding Smith's point of view. I made a mention to the true Scotsman fallacy. Let me break that down in case you don't know what it is. A true Scotsman fallacy is a logical fallacy. It is a logical error in thinking, which means that if you want to promote a certain position and you have statements that contradict your position, then you simply say that those are not to believe. They're not authentic. The authentic ones, the authentic statements are the ones, of course, that promote your position. The others are not authentic. The idea comes from the idea of a true Scotsman where a statement might be made that no Scotsman would ever hate haggis. And then the person brings up the counter argument, well, I'm a Scotsman and I hate haggis. And the response then is, well, no true Scotsman would ever hate haggis. That would be an example. In other words, you override contradicting evidence by saying that no true Scotsman would ever hate haggis, or whatever the situation might be. Here, Joseph Fielding Smith has at least three contradicting statements to his point of view, but he's going to brush them aside without quoting them, without even talking about them, and just say, well, they're not authentic. He says, yet there is no authentic statement in the history of the church which states that the use of such a stone was made in that translation. Okay, now he goes on with his argument. The information is all hearsay. Oh my gosh, hearsay. Yeah, right. The information is all hearsay. And personally, I do not believe that this stone was used for this purpose. Interesting that he goes here to his own personal belief. Apparently, his position is not as rock solid, pardon the pun, as he might like to present. He says, personally, I do not believe that this stone was used for this purpose. The reason I give for this conclusion is found in the statement of the Lord to the brother of Jared as recorded in Ether chapter three, verses 22 through 24. These stones, the Urim and Thummim, And by the way, let me break here for a second. At no place in the Book of Mormon are the interpreters or the stones ever referred to as the Urim and Thummim. That is a later development. But he's taking the phrase Urim and Thummim and casting it back into the Book of Mormon as if the Book of Mormon actually used that phrase. This is significant, as we'll show later. Joseph Fielding Smith goes on. These stones, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared, were preserved for this very purpose of translating the record both of the Jaredites and the Nephites. Then again, the prophet was impressed by Moroni with the fact that these stones were given for that very purpose. There he's referring to the history of the church section, which we just read, because when we read that quote from Joseph Smith, actually he's quoting Moroni when he appeared to him and talking about the contents of this stone box. He hasn't actually retrieved them yet, but Moroni is appearing to Joseph Smith and telling him what's in the stone box, including those stones which were prepared for the purpose of translating the book. So that's what Joseph Fielding Smith means when he says, then again, the prophet was impressed by Moroni with the fact that these stones were given for that very purpose. It hardly seems reasonable, and here I think he makes a good point, it hardly seems reasonable to suppose that the prophet would substitute something evidently inferior under these circumstances. In other words, if God has taken these two stones and prepared them For translating the Book of Mormon, and that's the reason that Moroni tells Joseph Smith the stones are in the box with the plates, is for translating the book. It hardly seems reasonable to suppose that the prophet would substitute something evidently inferior, i.e., his own personal seer stone, under these circumstances. It may have been so. He's got to give some leeway for these statements, which he says are actually all hearsay, and they're not authentic, but he's still going to give them some leeway. It may have been so, but it is so easy for a story of this kind to be circulated due to the fact that the prophet did possess a seer stone. So at least he says he possessed a seer stone. It's just Joseph Ealing Smith's position that he didn't use a seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon, a position that has now been refuted, discounted, contradicted by the LDS Church in an official capacity on its own webpage in the essay dealing with this subject. And he concludes that last sentence by saying it may have been so, but it is so easy for a story of this kind to be circulated due to the fact that the prophet did possess a seer stone, which he may have used for some other purposes. Interesting. He doesn't really talk about what those other purposes might have been, but he's still pretty darn sure that Joseph Smith didn't use the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon, because once again, what sense would it make? God prepares the seer stones, he has them sealed up with the book, Moroni tells Joseph Smith that's the purpose of the stones, and Joseph Smith goes, meh, forget it, I'm just going to use my own seer stone here. Thanks all the same. And so now what we're left with is a strange position that not only has the LDS Church today with its essay that was published in 2015 admitting, acknowledging, and actually teaching the fact that Joseph Smith did translate the Book of Mormon, at least as we have it today. With the seer stone and putting it in a hat, not only are they contradicting Joseph Fielding Smith's position from the 1950s and 60s, but they also appear to be contradicting Moroni as quoted by Joseph Smith in The Pearl of Great Price. In other words, this stands in tension with the scriptures themselves. Not only the Book of Mormon that talks about a seer being one who is commanded to use stones to translate ancient records, but also the Joseph Smith history where it says that Moroni told Joseph Smith that there were two stones that were in the box with the plates and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. You see how this stands in tension with it? Joseph Smith says these stones were placed in the box for the purpose of translating the book. And the church today is saying, no, Joseph Smith did not use these stones for the purpose of translating the book. Instead, he used his own personal seer stone. Now because of this tension, there has been an effort made, I believe, in order to try and find some place in the translation of the Book of Mormon where Joseph Smith actually did use these seer stones, i.e. the Urim and Thummim that he talks about in his 1838 history. If God prepared them for the purpose of translating the book, but we've got all these statements over here by other witnesses talking about Joseph Smith using a seer stone in a hat, i.e. using this inferior method using the phrase of Joseph Fielding Smith then there must have been some place where Joseph Smith actually used the Urim and Thummim. So since we know it wasn't during the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today, what is customarily done is to try and shove it earlier into the translation of the 116 pages, i.e. the first segment of translation, which Joseph Smith did primarily using Martin Harris as his scribe. And And yet, it does not appear to be the case that Joseph Smith used this Urim and Thummim he describes in his history in translating the 116 pages either. In contrast to that idea, there is a story told by Martin Harris. It's a famous story. Probably every one of you who's ever been a member of this church knows this story, talking about an incident that occurred when Martin Harris was serving as Joseph Smith's scribe during the dictation of the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon. On the Fair Mormon website, you can find a quote that contains this story from Martin Harris. It's in an article written by Stephen Ricks for the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. In this article by Stephen Ricks titled, Converging Paths, Language and Cultural Notes on the Ancient Near Eastern Background of the Book of Mormon, he quotes Martin Harris as follows. He leads into it with this statement. Quoting from the article, Martin Harris aided in the translation of the book of lehi so yes this is the book of lehi this is the lost 116 pages this is before the translation of the book of mormon as we have it today this is what martin harris is reported as saying after continued translation they would become weary he and joseph would become weary and would go down to the river and exercise by throwing stones out on the river and etc While so doing on one occasion, Martin found a stone very much resembling the one used for translating. So you see here he's using a seer stone. And on resuming their labor of translation, Martin put in its place the stone that he had found. He said that the prophet remained silent, unusually and intently, gazing in darkness. You see he's using his hat. No traces of the usual sentences appearing on the stone as was the custom, right? Much surprised, Joseph exclaimed, Martin, what is the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. Martin's countenance betrayed him, and the prophet asked Martin why he had done so. Martin said to stop the mouths of fools who had told him that the prophet had learned those sentences and was merely repeating them. And so this is a story that Martin Harris tells somebody else later on about his role in the translation of the 116 pages. And while this was faith-promoting to Martin Harris, It nevertheless shows us that at least on this occasion, and apparently the customary practice was in translating the 116 pages, not to use the two stones and the silver bows fastened to the breastplate, but to use the seer stone in the hat, i.e. in darkness, where Joseph Smith all is as dark as Egypt, to use the seer stone in the hat, and this seer stone was sufficiently common looking enough that Martin Harris could find one that he thought was absolutely identical just down at the river while they were throwing rocks. So what it's starting to look more and more like is based upon the testimony of witnesses and the admission of the church. Joseph Smith used a seer stone in his hat exclusively when dictating what we have today as the Book of Mormon. And it also appears from the statement by Martin Harris that the seer stone in the hat method was also used during the translation of the 116 pages. Now, is it possible that at the very beginning, Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim that was found in the box? I suppose anything's possible. I think Martin Harris may have left a statement that indicates that. It's not clear at all whether Martin Harris is just taking Joseph Smith's word for it or not, but it does appear from Martin Harris's story about the stone at the river and swapping it out with Joseph Smith's stone in the hat that it was the common practice for Joseph Smith to use his seer stone in translating the 116 pages when Martin Harris was his scribe as well. So I want to round out this part of the episode on Lost in Translation. This is obviously going to be a multi-part podcast. But I want to round out the end of part one, at least, by talking about how it is that a seer stone that was used to translate virtually all, if not all, of the 116 pages and definitely all of the Book of Mormon as we have it today, ends up becoming, in Joseph Smith's history, a Urim and Thummim, described as being two stones and a silver bow fastened to a breastplate, which were buried with the gold plates specifically for the purpose of translating the book, when obviously that was not what happened. It appears that what happened here is something that happened in other categories as well, but talking first specifically about how the seer stone became a Urim and Thummim. It appears that the early origins of Mormonism, including the translation of the Book of Mormon, the Restoration of the Priesthood by Peter, James, and John, and other items of early Mormon history, were firmly rooted in the folk magic that was prevalent in Joseph Smith's day. After the church was organized, however, there appears to have been an effort made to take those items of folk magic and biblicize them. And what I mean by biblicize is take things that are folk magic and change their nature and change their description and change the terms used to describe them to terms that are rooted in the Bible. Now, this Urim and Thummim is a classic example. The Urim and Thummim is a biblical term and it is used to describe a stone or perhaps two stones that were contained in the breastplate, in a pouch in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. First off with Aaron, then subsequently with those who succeeded him in the office of high priest. They had two stones that were contained in the high priest's vestment, in the breastplate called the Urim and Thummim. It's Hebrew, it means lights and perfections, and those were used in some way that is not described in the Old Testament, some way of divining perhaps, some way of divining the will of God. Now, I think the most common understanding of this among Old Testament scholars is that these were lots of some sort, i.e. they're like dice, and they could be rolled, and based upon what was rolled, this was determined to be the will of God being manifest through the casting of lots or the rolling of dice, similar to what we have in Acts chapter one in the New Testament, where the new apostle was called and chosen to take the place of Judas, who had fallen and transgressed and gone off and killed himself. But regardless of how the Urim and Thummim actually worked, there appears to have been a process by which the seer stone, the brown seer stone that Joseph Smith actually used to translate all of the Book of Mormon, including the 116 pages, and over time, there was an effort made to recast this seer stone as the Urim and Thummim in order to make it look like the translation of the Book of Mormon was completed by something that is much more biblical in nature. Seer stone sounds magicy. Urim and Thummim sounds biblical. If we're going to start a Christian church that's based on the Bible as well as additional scripture, but definitely based on the Bible, we want it to sound more biblical in nature. And that appears to be what happened here. One piece of evidence in this regard is the fact that in the 1833 Book of Commandments, in a specific revelation which we will get to, the word Urim and Thummim is not used. And yet in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, the Urim and Thummim magically appears in the same revelation let me back up here just a second just to make sure this is very clear to everybody in 1833 joseph smith and the church produced a collection of joseph smith's revelations this is in the book of commandments now this is the book that was published in missouri 1833 there's a mob that comes destroys the press There haven't been any Books of Commandments published yet when the press is destroyed, but two girls take a bunch of the pages that have been printed. They go running out into the cornfields to escape the mob, and then those pages are subsequently bound and published as the Book of Commandments. And so because of that history, it has a very limited edition. It is very valuable today if you have a copy of the Book of Commandments. But that's that story. That's where the Book of Commandments comes from. And in 1835, an enlarged version, of the Book of Commandments was published and that was the Doctrine and Covenants. So that's the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants is 1835, but it republishes many of the commandments, if not all of the commandments or revelations that were in the 1833 Book of Commandments. So what we have in many instances is that the Book of Commandments, the revelations there in the 1833 version are republished in 1835 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And when we compare the same revelation from the 1833 Book of Commandments to the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, we can frequently find some interesting additions and changes. Now, one of the most famous changes has to do with section 27 in our current Doctrine and Covenants, which talks about Peter, James, and John appearing to Joseph Smith and giving him the priesthood. The reason that is famous is because in that same revelation in the 1833 Book of Commandments, there is no mention of Peter, James, and John. In fact, they are added with a long passage of additional material to that revelation, which is in section 27 of our current Doctrine and Covenants. So somewhere between 1833 and 1835, it was thought significant or important enough to add Peter, James, and John to this revelation. So these are very, very important books, the 1833 Book of Commandments and the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, because when we compare these changes, we can see the church in progress. We can see the church in transition. We can see a development in church doctrine as well as in church history and the way it recounts things that were happening. And this is a similar thing that happens with the phrase Urim and Thummim. So if we look in the Book of Commandments, chapter nine, in the Book of Commandments, they're divided into chapters, not sections. Sections is what appears with the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the term we're more familiar with. But in chapter nine of the Book of Commandments, published in 1833, it has the revelation to Joseph Smith that was given in Harmony, Pennsylvania in May of 1829. Now, this revelation corresponds to section 10 of our current Doctrine and Covenants. It's the same revelation, but there have been some changes made. And I'm just going to read the first verse. Here's the first verse from 1833 of this revelation. Now, behold, I say unto you that because you delivered up so many writings, which you had power to translate into the hands of a wicked man. This is Martin Harris, the wicked man. This is the revelation where God... Talks to Joseph Smith about why it is that he is not to retranslate the lost 116 pages, but instead that there is this second history, the small place of Nephi, which he can translate instead. Once again, it says, Now behold, I say unto you that because you delivered up so many writings which you had power to translate into the hands of a wicked man, you have lost them. You also lost your gift at the same time. Let's stop right there, okay? Because you'll notice that in that verse there is no mention of the Urim and Thummim. Instead, it just talks about you delivered up so many writings. Nothing about the Urim and Thummim. So that's 1833. Two years goes by. Now we're going to publish the same revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants and lo and behold, what to my wondering eyes should appear but the Urim and Thummim. Here is verse 1 from section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants. You can look this up yourself. Now behold, I say unto you that because you delivered up those writings which you had power given unto you to translate, by the means of the Urim and Thummim, into the hands of a wicked man you have lost them, and you also lost your gift at the same time." So notice that the Urim and Thummim, which was not mentioned in the 1833 version of this revelation, suddenly appears in the 1835 account of this revelation. This particular point is not the subject matter of tonight's podcast. I'm not going to go into exhaustive historical detail. It's my understanding that it was William W. Phelps that is the first person to have used the appellation Urim and Thummim to Joseph Smith's seer stone. But now we get to the point where in the 1835 account of the Doctrine and Covenants, Urim and Thummim is being used to describe the seer stone. And by 1838, Joseph Smith is describing the Urim and Thummim in greater detail, it being two stones and silver bows fastened to a breastplate. But this is one of the reasons it is so easy to get lost in the translation process. Because a later term, Urim and Thummim, that was used to describe the seer stone in order to give it more biblical gravitas, biblical historicity, biblical rootedness, ends up becoming used as a substitute for the seer stone. And then it is used in documents written after 1833 to describe the seer stone being used prior to 1833. So this is why it's easy to get lost. It looks like Joseph Smith in 1838 is talking about a Urim and Thummim that he used in order to translate the Book of Mormon, and yet you've got these early witnesses talking about him using a seer stone in a hat. You've got the 1833 account of a revelation not mentioning a Urim and Thummim, and then in the 1835 account of the same revelation, all of a sudden the phrase Urim and Thummim appears. So if we look at this chronologically, we can trace the development of the idea that Joseph Smith originally used a very folk magic-y practice of looking at a seer stone in a hat in order to translate the Book of Mormon. And over time, that becomes described and biblicized as the Urim and Thummim, which then is retroactively put into the history of the church by describing it as something that had happened from the beginning. It's something very similar that appears to be happening with Peter, James, and John. There is no mention of Peter, James, and John prior to the 18th 30s and in fact this is one of the things that David Whitmer said concerned him very much and Thomas Marsh echoed him in this concern that they never heard anything about Peter James and John until many years after Peter James and John were supposed to have appeared which was in 1829 that's when they're supposed to have appeared. that's what we all learn in the church but they didn't hear about it until the 1830s and in fact in section 27 you can look at it in the 1833 book of commandments no mention of Peter James and John but by the time 1835 rolls around All of a sudden, a long passage is added to the same section, which includes the description and the naming of Peter, James, and John being the individuals who gave the Melchizedek Priesthood or the High Priesthood to Joseph Smith in 1829. Now, I don't want to belabor this point, though I find it endlessly fascinating, but the Urim and Thummim is not the only thing that went through this kind of metamorphosis, from being something used in folk magic to having the terms changed to make it more acceptable to a Bible-believing public after the church was organized. And here I'm talking about the divining rod that Oliver Cowdery had in his possession and which he used to ascertain God's will and perhaps where water was buried and other interesting things. I'm going to go at this the reverse way. Instead of going to the way it started in the 1833 Book of Commandments, I'm going to go to where it ended up in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants and then work backward from there. This is going from Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now it's Section 8 and Section 9 that deal with translation directions to Oliver Cowdery. Section 8 is where Oliver Cowdery gets the green light to go ahead and translate the Book of Mormon and help Joseph Smith with this project. And Section 9 is the explanation as to why it was that it didn't work, why this whole project fell flat. But section 8 says this, in verse 2, which has the commonly heard verse, Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart, by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you, and which shall dwell in your heart. Now that's the part that usually gets quoted in church. What we do not go on and quote is the following, where it talks about Oliver's gift. Commencing in verse 3, Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Verse 4. Therefore, this is thy gift. So this is God talking to Oliver Cowdery. Therefore, this is thy gift. Apply unto it, and blessed art thou. For it, your gift, for it shall deliver you out of the hands of your enemies. When, if it were not so, They would slay you and bring your soul to destruction. Well, what on earth is this gift that Oliver Cowdery has? Oh, remember these words and keep my commandments. Remember, this is your gift. There's a lot of stress on this gift that Oliver Cowdery has in this section. Section 8. Now, this is not all thy gift, for you have another gift. Oh, Oliver Cowdery has another gift. This is the one that's really going to be interesting. For you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. A-A-R-O-N. That's Moses' brother you have the gift of Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. What is this gift of Aaron that Oliver has that has told him many things? Verse seven says, behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. Wow, this is a special gift. Verse eight, therefore doubt not for it is the gift of God and you shall hold it in your hands. Now that's interesting. What is the spiritual gift? that Oliver Cowdery has, that is called the gift of Aaron, that no other power than the power of God can cause to work, and that Oliver Cowdery can hold in his hands. This is something different than just a spiritual gift. I'm not aware of any spiritual gift that you can hold in your hands. And it says, Therefore doubt not, for it is the gift of God, and you shall hold it in your hands and do marvelous works. And no power shall be able to take it away out of your hands. There's another reference to the hands for it is the work of God. And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that will I grant unto you, and you shall have knowledge concerning it. So this is a gift that Oliver has that he can hold in his hands. It's called the gift of Aaron, and it is a means of receiving revelation and communication from God. Now, I want to mention to you that after I got back from my mission, I began studying the scriptures even more in earnest than I had before. And one of the exercises I went through was I got all of those big, thick institute manuals. I wasn't taking the institute class on these subjects. I did take institute class, but on different subjects. But I made a point of getting the institute manuals and reading through the scriptures and at the same time reading through the institute manual so I could uncover and learn more about the scriptures. I remember doing this at home and I remember doing this with the Doctrine and Covenants and I had the institute manual of the Doctrine and Covenants with me. And there were times at which I would read the scriptures and the scriptures would raise a question in my mind and I wanted to know the answer. And I would read the institute manual hoping to find the answer and more often than not, The Institute Manual never addressed the question that had been raised in my mind concerning the scriptures. and This was one of the classic examples. This is the one example that I remember after all of these years. This is in the early 1980s, this is probably 1982 when I'm actually doing this. But I remember reading through Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, reading about this gift that Oliver has, this gift of Aaron that he can hold in his hands and wondering what on earth does that mean that he can hold it in his hands and I read the Institute Manual, and all it did was spiritualize it. In other words, it didn't address the scripture that said he could hold it in his hands. It just said it's some sort of vague, ephemeral gift of Aaron. It's some spiritual gift, and it never answered the question that I had. So it was sometime after that, and not that long after that, I was pretty studious, I've got to tell you, that I discovered that the reason it says that it's a gift of Aaron and it's a gift that can be held in his hand is because this was Oliver Cowdery's divining rod that this revelation is talking about. And that fact is made much more explicit in the 1833 account, the Book of Commandments account of this same revelation where it actually says this is The rod, this is the rod of Aaron. It is the rod of nature. And that is why Oliver Cowdery could hold it in his hands because it was Oliver Cowdery's rod. Joseph Smith had a seer stone, which he used for various purposes and then developed it into using it to receive revelation from God. Oliver Cowdery had a divining rod, which he used for various purposes and ultimately attempted to develop it into an instrument that he could receive divine revelation from God. But apparently that didn't work out so well. So having read section 8 from the Doctrine and Covenants, let's go to that same revelation as it was published two years earlier in the Book of Commandments. Okay, remember in verse 5 of section 8, it says, Remember, this is your gift. Now this is not all thy gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. That's the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. That same revelation, two years earlier, said this. Remember, this is your gift. Now this is not all, for you have another gift which is the gift of working with the rod. So originally it said this is the gift of working with the rod. That was changed in the 1835 account to this is the gift of Aaron. Originally it said this is the gift of working with the rod. Behold, it has told you things. Behold, there is no other power save God that can cause this rod of nature to be with you. And that was changed again in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants to The gift of Aaron. Once again, the 1833 account says, there is no other power save God that can cause this rod of nature to work in your hands. And the 1835 Doctrine and Covenant says, behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. So they even take out the hands part there. The 1833 version goes on, and therefore whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that will I grant unto you that you shall know. Remember that without faith you can do nothing, etc. So we see that the 1835 account of the Doctrine and Covenants modified this revelation to remove the reference to the fact that Oliver Cowdery was using a rod. Now, in that 1833 version of the revelation, it said rod of Aaron or rod of nature. So we can already see underway, even in the 1833 account, an attempt to link Oliver Cowdery's divining rod with a biblical antecedent being the rod of Aaron. So what I'm trying to show here is that the seer stone over time becoming biblicized into the Urim and Thummim is not without precedent. A similar thing appears to have happened to Oliver Cowdery's divining rod, which over time now becomes the rod of Aaron and then eventually gets completely omitted from the Revelations altogether. And instead of the rod of Aaron or the rod of nature, as in the 1833 version, it gets changed to simply the gift of Aaron, the ambiguous phrase. The gift of Aaron with no reference to its being a rod at all in the 1835 version. There is a systematized attempt going on to take the roots of Mormonism, which are firmly embedded in the folk magic of Joseph Smith's environment and culture and recast them as things that sound a lot more biblical and a lot less folk magicy. So we've talked about this with the Seer Stone. We've talked about this with Oliver Cowdery's Divining Rod. Now, the last thing I'm going to talk about tonight, I promise, the last thing I'm going to talk about tonight is that the same kind of process appears to have been gone through with the messenger who appeared to Joseph Smith to show him the Book of Mormon, and where the Book of Mormon, the gold plates, were hidden. It appears that it is quite likely that it didn't start out as an angel of God, i.e. a biblical kind of angel of God, even though his name is Moroni. It appears that this story may have started out as being a guardian spirit of a treasure. I think all my listeners will know that Joseph Smith was engaged in money digging a number of times, 12, 13 times, I can't remember the exact count that there's documentation for that Dan Vogel has provided, that Joseph Smith would take his seer stone, he'd put it in a hat, he would locate where the treasure was and where everybody should dig, but that it was commonly understood that these treasures were guarded by treasure spirits and that certain rituals and incantations had to be gone through in order to get past this spirit who guarded the treasure. And as I say, it is possible that this treasure spirit guardian who protected the gold plates, i.e. the treasure, may have been transformed over a period of years into the angel, the biblical angel. And when I say biblical, I mean an angel in the biblical sense. Moroni doesn't appear in the Bible, but this type of angel, this idea of an angel has biblical roots. And it sounds a lot better to a Bible-believing public if you're going to start a church and try and get people to believe it to talk about an angel of God appearing to show you where the plates were hidden rather than a guardian spirit. The evidence that I want to point to in support of this position is an affidavit that was signed by Willard Chase on December 11, 1833 in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Now, Willard Chase, as you will recall, was a friend, acquaintance, and associate of Joseph Smith during his early days, during his treasure digging days, and Willard Chase and his sister, Sally Chase, were very much involved with Joseph Smith in obtaining seer stones. I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail there. Others have done that in other venues. Bill Real has gone into these stories very recently on his Mormon Discussion podcast. But suffice it to say, for purposes of this podcast, which is starting to get overly long right now, even though we're only in part one, that Willard Chase knew Joseph Smith very well. He knew about his treasure digging activities. He was a person who was acquainted with the Smith family. And in 1833, he signed a declaration in which he recounts a story that was told to him by Joseph Smith's dad, i.e., Joseph Smith Sr. What Willard Chase says is that in June of 1827, he heard the following from Joseph Smith Sr. So June 1827, he's signing this in 1833. That would have been six years before. And once again, Joseph Smith Sr. is talking about things that Joseph Smith Sr. could have only heard from his son, Joseph Smith. So this is double hearsay. And yet it appears to be being given by someone who is well acquainted with the family. It is given not that long after the incident in question being six years. And at the time that Joseph Smith Sr. told him this in June of 1827, it would have been in the thick of things related to Moroni and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon plates. Except that in this story, Joseph Smith Sr. does not mention Moroni. He does not mention an angel of God, showing his son where the plates were hidden. Instead, he mentions an unnamed spirit that is apparently the custodian and guardian of the gold plates. And even more interesting than this, he mentions a toad, or something that looked like a toad, which then assumes the appearance of a man and does violence upon Joseph Smith. Here is the statement, once again, Willard Chase, quoting, joseph smith senior from six years prior in 1827 now i'm quoting from the affidavit of willard chase in the month of june 1827 joseph smith senior related to me the following story and now he's going to quote joseph smith senior that some years ago a spirit had appeared to joseph his son in a vision notice not an angel not moroni But a spirit had appeared to Joseph his son in a vision and informed him that in a certain place there was a record on plates of gold and that he was the person that must obtain them. And this he must do in the following manner. On the 22nd of September, he must repair to the place where was deposited this manuscript. Dressed in black clothes and riding a black horse with a switched tail, and demand the book in a certain name. And after obtaining it, he must go directly away, and neither lay it down nor look behind him. See all these folk magic elements associated with getting the plates? But notice the detail that Joseph Smith was ordered not to put the plates down or look away from the plates when he was in the process of retrieving the plates from the hill. The affidavit goes on. They accordingly fitted out Joseph with a suit of black clothes and borrowed a black horse. He repaired to the place of deposit and demanded the book, which was in a stone box, unsealed, and so near the top of the ground that he could see one end of it, and raising it up, took out the book of gold. But fearing someone might discover where he got it, he laid it down to place back the top stone as he found it." So here Joseph Smith opens the box by taking off the top stone removes the book of gold but then he's worried that someone might see where it was he got the gold plates from and he puts the stone back on top of the box but in order to do that he has to set the gold plates down on the ground once again going back to the declaration he took out the book of gold but fearing someone might discover where he got it he laid it down to place back the top stone as he found it and turning around to his surprise There was no book in sight. See, the gold book had disappeared. He again opened the box and in it saw the book. So it's magically reappeared inside the stone box and attempted to take it out, but was hindered. Now listen closely to this next part. He, Joseph, he saw in the box something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man and struck him on the side of his head. Not being discouraged at trifles, he again stooped down and strove to take the book. When the spirit, see this man is a spirit, this is the spirit, not an angel, but it's a spirit who appears in the form of a man after being transformed from something that looked like a toad. When the spirit struck him again, and knocked him three or four rods and hurt him prodigiously. Now, we don't use rods very much in measuring things anymore, but I looked up the distance that a rod is, and it's approximately 16 and a half feet. So if this spirit knocked Joseph Smith three or four rods, he knocked him 40 or 50 feet away. No wonder it hurt him prodigiously. This is like a scene from a Superman movie going on. After recovering from his fright, he inquired why he could not obtain the plates, to which the spirit made reply, because you have not obeyed your orders. He didn't follow the instructions exactly, so he couldn't get the gold plates. He then inquired when he could have them, and was answered thus, Come one year from this day, and bring with you your oldest brother, and you shall have them. This spirit, he said, was the spirit of the prophet who wrote this book, and who was sent to Joseph Smith to make known these things to him. Before the expiration of the year, his oldest brother died, which the old man said was an accidental providence. Joseph went one year from that day to demand the book, and the Spirit inquired for his brother, and he said that he was dead. So apparently the spirit doesn't know his brother's already died. The spirit then commanded him to come again in just one year and bring a man with him. On asking who might be the man, he was answered that he would know him when he saw him and the declaration goes on. But the main thing I want to focus on is that according to the Willard Chase affidavit from 1833 and his conversation with Joseph Smith Sr. from six years prior in June of 1827, there is no mention of an angel guarding the gold plates. There is no mention of an angel showing Joseph Smith where the gold plates are hidden. Instead, there is a mention of a spirit who appears in the form of a man. It is a spirit who acts in every particular, just like a traditional guardian spirit would act. He is one who guards the treasure and does not allow it to be taken, unless the orders are followed expressly. And then, typically, the orders are not followed, so the plates cannot be gotten, the treasure cannot be gotten, and then when he gives a condition that has to be followed for a year later, then that can't be followed either because Alvin, Joseph Smith's older brother, had passed away. And once again, there's the interesting statement here. He saw in the box something like a toad would soon assume the appearance of a man and struck him on the side of his head. If that sounds eerily similar to the salamander letter, the forgery by Mark Hoffman, there's a reason for that because this quote in this affidavit by Willard Chase is almost doubtless the source, the inspiration, the salamander letter. Once again, this was not a completely new idea that there would be a salamander in a box that would transform itself into a man which is what was in the salamander letter of the forgery. That was not a completely new idea. It did not come out of left field. If it had, it would not have been accepted and believed to be genuine. Instead, the reason that Mark Hoffman was able to get people to believe that this really could be genuine was not just because it looked like a true and authentic document. It did not look like a forgery, but it also said things that had connections in other statements and declarations and documents from early Mormon history, specifically like this declaration by Willard Chase, declarations and documents that the church at large had no knowledge of, but experts in the field did know about. And at this point, to refresh your recollection, it might be a good idea to go back to that forgery, that salamander forgery that was produced by Mark Hoffman. It is a letter that was purportedly, not really, but purportedly, remember, it's a forgery, Purportedly written by Martin Harris to W.W. Phelps. It is dated from Palmyra, October 23rd, 1830. It begins, Dear Sir, and," and here is the most controversial aspect of the salamander letter forgery. In the fall of the year 1827, I hear Joseph found a gold Bible. I take Joseph aside and he says it is true. I found it four years ago with my stone, but only just got it because of the enchantment. The old spirit come to me three times in the same dream. Notice he calls him an old spirit. Come to me three times in the same dream. And. And says, Dig up the gold, but when I take it up the next morning, the Spirit transfigured himself from a white salamander in the bottom of the hole and struck me three times and held the treasure and would not let me have it, because I lay it down to cover over the hole when the Spirit says, Do not lay it down. See how it is that this forgery that Mark Hoffman produced in the infamous salamander letter closely tracks the details of of the actual affidavit given by Willard Chase in 1833. Really, about the only difference is is that instead of a toad, the forgery calls it a salamander. It is little wonder that the experts in Mormon history and documents who already knew about the Willard Chase affidavit accepted the contents of the salamander letter as potentially authentic material. Now, having listened to what Willard Chase says, Joseph Smith Sr. told him about Joseph Smith's experience with the Spirit, how Joseph Smith removed the gold plates, put them down turned back to put the stone on top of the box, and when he looked back at the gold plates, they weren't there anymore because he hadn't kept them in his sight, he hadn't kept them in his possession like he was supposed to, and the plates appear now back in the box, and then Joseph Smith tries to get them again. There's something that looks like a toad, transforms itself into a man, and gives Joseph Smith such a wallop that he knocks him a distance of three or four rods and hurt him prodigiously. That's how Willard Chase describes it. So in conclusion, I think what we have here are three instances of the same kind of thing. We have Joseph Messier stone over time becoming a Urim and Thummim. We have Oliver Cowdery's divining rod over time becoming the rod of Aaron and then just becoming the gift of Aaron with no reference to the rod whatsoever. And we may have a spirit, a treasure spirit, a guardian spirit who transforms himself into a man from something that looks like a toad and gives Joseph Smith a wallop upside the head in order to keep him from getting the plates after he has disobeyed his orders, and this treasure spirit over time being transformed into an angel of God with the specific name, the angel Moroni. In this episode, we have gone from one point to another. We've gone from tangent to tangent. It is easy to get lost in this maze, in this morass of Mormonism, all of which circles around the plates of gold, the Book of Mormon, And the translation process. My hope is to paint in broad strokes. I know we've gotten into some details. Hopefully we haven't gotten too far out in the weeds in this discussion, but the broad strokes relating to this issue. In part two of this podcast, I will continue with my analysis of this paper written by the two BYU professors Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig Osler, titled The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon and published in the year 2000. I'm already almost finished with page one. So there may be more than just two parts of this podcast. We'll see how things develop. If you like what you're hearing at Radio Free Mormon, I encourage you to go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a donation there. I encourage a recurring donation if possible. One-time donations are fine, but recurring donations are optimal. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contribution will help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.